This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 25th of June, 2023. You can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is the language deficit in the UK, and we will have an interview with an MFL teacher. Katie, welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good late afternoon and early evening fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 41st radio show as your hostess and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first I have to introduce myself for any new potential listener. I am a French citizen of French and West African ancestry and I have been living in the UK since August 2008. I'm a professional educator working in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach both humanities and languages, which means French and Spanish, as well as history and geography. I also have experience as a nursery teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter, at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. Today I would like to focus on a topic that is extremely relevant in my daily working life as an educator, but also personally. The podcast and the discussion with our interviewee will both be on the topic of the language deficit in the UK. This is mostly relevant to anyone who lives in the UK, parents of children who attend school, people who teach, people who teach languages, and the curious and savvy. What are the main trends about learning languages in the United Kingdom? Well, if we look at the languages that are taught in secondary schools, the number of people who learn a language has fallen, usually, and it has reached um, less than 5,349,000 in summer 2022. There is also a very important shortage of students who take a language at their A-levels, so when they're post-16 years old. A-level entries in summer 2022 uh, were only 788,000. So we have a general choice from students not to take languages to study. And they go more for other subjects such as science, maths, further maths, biology, and maybe not so much into languages. So this means that the UK is becoming a state with a language deficit. There has been many studies done on the matter. An all-party parliamentary group, APPG, 
for Modern Languages was chaired with, by Professor Mike Kelly, who is a languages advocate and he's an expert. And he said that a lack of language skills actually cost the UK a lot of money. It cost, according to Professor Mike Kelly, up to 3.5% of GDP. And I'm quoting Mike Kelly again. Our language blind spot costs us a lot of, of lost business, and it will need a multi-pronged approach to turn this around. The APPG, which stands for the All-Party Parliamentary Group, report sets strategic objectives to achieve this in the areas of education, business and public policy. Some countries have more than 90% of their population that speaks more than one language. I'm thinking of Luxembourg or Switzerland. But other countries, such as the United Kingdom, have less than 8% of people who speak more than one language. So this is not a good thing because it's a lack of diversity in languages and a lack of um, skills that you can use on the job market. What languages do we learn in state schools in the UK? Well, it's still Spanish and French, which are the majority of the languages taught, but French is losing ground. More and more students prefer to study Spanish because they have um, this idea that Spanish is easier to learn than French. The British Council also lists Mandarin and Arabic as two non-European languages that are becoming more popular at the moment. There's a report published by the British Council called Languages for the Future. And in that report, it says that we need to strengthen languages in colleges and universities because too many universities are cutting costs by firing the people who work in their language department or by just cancelling all language learning. More than 50 universities in the UK have cut courses lately and scrapped departments entirely since the years 2000. So it's a generational loss now. Um, it's been 23 years since the years 2000, and we can see that languages are slowly and slowly being um, forgotten and left out. According to an online YouGov poll, 4,000 UK adults were asked questions it was commissioned by the British Council. Out of these 4,000 UK adults, three quarters of them, which means 75%, were unable to speak in any of the languages they learned at school, not able to speak a normal conversation. So this means that even though some people, the majority of people, have learned a language, they are not able to use it eff effectively. French was the only language spoken by 15% of these people, followed by German 6%, Spanish 4%, and Italian 2%. Now, there are um, other languages, non-European languages, such as Arabic, Mandarin, Russian, or Japanese, that are spoken by 1% of the, the people asked. And Portuguese and Turkish are also appearing in this YouGov poll. The problem is, if we only have people who speak English in the UK, we will have small to medium enterprises and companies that won't have the same international reach or range that all other multinational corporations can enjoy. It is not easy to build relationships with non-English speaking partners or countries if we don't have 
employees who can access the language. Research by the British Chambers of Commerce showed that 96% of exporters have no foreign language ability for the markets they serve. I'll give you an example. It would be an English company selling maybe to a country in South America and no one in the department who is doing sales is able to speak Spanish. So this language deficit affects all of us and it affects companies. Now, what should we be doing? Well, we should, because now the uh, UK is not part of the EU, we should also try to look at non-European languages. And remember that French is still spoken by 270 million people in the world, in Asia and Africa. Spanish is spoken by 500 million people in the world, in South America and in other parts of the world. So it's still languages that are European languages, but are also spoken outside Europe. Now, we should be doing more business in Asia, Africa, Central and South America. So we still need to have language skills. What is going on in schools to tackle the language skills? Well, as I said earlier, less than 10% of students in year 11 are studying French DCSE and use these skills effectively to achieve a B1 level on the European frame of reference for languages, which means that 90% of the children who are studying French for their GCSEs do not have a level that can sustain a conversation. So even those who are learning a language at school do not learn it in the right way that can equip them with the right skills. This is the lowest of any other EU country, by the way. So it means that the way we teach is not nurturing enough, it's not effective enough, but also it's because of its emphasis on exams, it is focused on exam learning and it becomes quickly boring and soulless for the students, but also for the teachers as well. If we look at figures published by the Department for Education, it shows that languages are one of the most badly affected by shortage of recruitment, recruitment shortages. In school weeks, schools weeks, it's an analysis that was published in 2018, it showed a trend that, in, that showed that there was less and less uh, teachers who were interested in becoming an MFL teacher. And as a result, there was less and less schools that wanted to invest in an MFL department. And as a result, because the departments are not nurtured and the students are not motivated to take the language, and then no one wants to do it for their A-levels. Most data about language learning in school was done pre-COVID, so it might have an even worse effect because a language is something we practice daily. It's something personable where you need a strong uh, relationship with your teacher in order to progress and in order to enjoy it. And having um, the disruption caused by COVID might, might have affected language skills even more. Language learning is difficult because language learning is incremental. You can't study a language for a month and then forget about it for six months and then take it up again. It wouldn't be effective. 
language needs to be learned every day, regularly practiced. It needs to be nurtured with listening and speaking practice. This is something that is a spiraling way. We start with no knowledge and then we add bits to it. And by practicing regularly, we build up. It's about immersion as well, retention and exposure, which means that it takes a lot of graft. Also, learning a language is something that can be biased because not um, all genders are interested in language learning at the same level or in the same way. It's also, a, there's a social class bias. We notice that more middle-class people or more el elitist people are interested into French, whereas some other languages are preferred by working people. There's also a geographical bias. People in um, smaller cities and rural areas do not see the point of learning a language, whereas people who are urban, cosmopolitan, and who travel a lot see the point of learning a language. And it's also a skills bias because the skill of speaking language is not always seen as useful by everybody. So the latest figures shows that the proportion of 16-year-old students studying a language has dropped back to 40%. 47%. So it's a little bit more than the majority of students, but that's far, far from what the government wants. The government wanted to have all students age 16 learning language by 2024. Well, it's not going to happen anytime soon, and we need to palliate that state of language deficit. We noticed that there is more people studying a language in London and the Southeast, and that there's more girls studying languages than boys. We also notice that children who have special educational needs or children who are living in poverty have less access to learning a language. So there is a language crisis in the UK. Uh, there was a report um, published by the Higher Education Policy Institute entitled A Language Christ Question Mark by Megan Bowler. And we can now answer for Megan Bowler that there is a language crisis. And the languages crisis now is seen in the number of teachers who become MFL teachers. There is less and less teachers who want to be language teachers. The report notes Megan Bowler's report notes that GCSE entries in German have fallen by, let's listen to that number, 67% in one generation since 2002, and French entries by 62%. It's a massive fall. It's a massive loss. It is really sad. It makes me sad because when we learn a language, we understand a culture and then we're more interested in the people who live in that country. And when we don't learn a language, we feel more like we are on an island and we refuse to open up to other cultures. So it is not a good indictment for the future. There is also a problem with the fact that more um, richer schools Grammar schools, private schools offer more languages, whereas schools with less means financially or schools in an area of high deprivation offer maybe one language at best and sometimes none. So there's an inequality of access and a, a lack of choice. A lot of students are not asked which language they want to choose. They're not given that option, which is a shame because if you choose something, you're more likely to be motivated about it and work hard at it.
schools with a lot of children on free school meals, so children whose income, the family income is less than £8,000 a year, uh, have less access to learning a language. So there's a big inequality in access to learning a language. Now, it's not all dark and depressing. There is also hope. The Mandarin Excellence Programme that was started by the Department for Education and the Chinese states offers free um, teachers, Mandarin teachers, who can come to schools and teach uh, Mandarin lessons. It is a very good program and we, um, we can see that it is very popular. Mandarin language is subsidized um, by UCL, the Institute of Education and the British Council, and also by the Chinese state. So this makes it very good for schools because they do not need to pay for the Mandarin teacher. But then it creates a hierarchy of languages. There is the minority languages or the community languages, the languages that are spoken by the people who live in the area, such as Turkish, Urdu, Hebrew, um, Portuguese. And then there's the languages that are offered by the school, usually French and Spanish. And then there's the languages that are new and brought up by these other a support system such as Mandarin. So it creates a hierarchy in languages and not all languages get the same support as others. So what is the language myth? Um, it's the myth that by just um, being immersed, children will learn a language. It doesn't work like this. To, to learn a language, children need a lot of motivation. They need to work from very from nothing for starting with sounds and vocab easy words and then they need to have a grasp of the grammar and they need to practice 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 be exposed to the language and then they need to travel to the country and spend time in it and unless all this work and all this support system has been put in place it is very difficult to become fluent in any language so Without further ado, we're going to introduce our interviewee of the day. Um, it is a very important subject, languages, because obviously I'm teaching languages, but because it represents politically what's going on in the UK. Since Brexit, we might even think that languages are even less popular than before. So let's hear what Katie has to tell us about languages. She's an expert in her field, and I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from her. So thank you, Katie, um, for uh, answering my questions today. I know you're very busy and I appreciate your time and dedication to the cause. Um, I'm going to start straight in and I'm just going to ask you, how long have you been working in education for? Um, I've been working in education for 12 years. Um, so I uh, became the teacher in 2012 and I spent 12 years um, teaching and for five of those I was a head of department and then three weeks ago um, I've just moved into a new role um, working in teacher development, working with um, trainee teachers and also ECTs, um, so supporting um, trainee teachers to uh, achieve QTS and a PGDE and supporting um, ECTs with the ECF. Um, so both aspects of teacher development. Okay, so that's a very new role. <laughs> very new, yeah, three weeks. 
Right, like three so... weeks ago, I was still in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. So you have plenty of experience. Can I ask you, did you go to university to do your PGCE or was it a different program? You? Uh, yeah, so I did a university-based um, PGCE and, and I did it at the University of Cumbria, but pre it being called the University of Cumbria, it was called St. Martin's Teacher Training College. Um, and so it's quite um, famous for quite a specific methodology of teaching um, languages, Colin Christie um, being sort of the most famous kind of face face of the methodology. So it's a very, um, uh, it's about 100% target language and it's a very immersive way of, of teaching languages. So although that's actually not the way I taught once I was a classroom teacher, it was um, a really great PGC to do because it was very MFL specific. It wasn't generic at all. All of my lectures were only with MFL teachers. I, I, I was never with um, teachers of other subjects like I know many people are on other yes. PGC courses. Um, uh, so it was a completely MFL specific PGC, which I think was such a great start to my teaching career, because even though it wasn't, it was very specifically training us to teach one methodology. And even though it wasn't the methodology I ended up using myself as a teacher, it nonetheless was a very, um, you know, a very instructive year because we spent so long just talking about mfl teaching um which i think is quite different to other teach training courses so i feel yes. really lucky to um, to have uh, graduated from the university of cumbria and which languages do you teach um so french is my main language i studied french at university um but i have taught spanish um like many mfl teachers yes. i picked up languages along the way um and like i it or not <laughs> yeah exactly um, unfortunately, MFL gets considered a subject rather than the individual languages being considered a subject. Um, so I have taught Spanish up to GCSE, but um, French is my main and I've taught that up to A level. Okay. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock when I came to the country because I realized that I had to brush up with my Spanish very, very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in France, you even have, um, if, you, if you're a Latin teacher, you usually focus on Latin, you wouldn't even really teach French. So it's, um, it's a completely different way of seeing teaching. I think in England, you focus more on what's transferable, all the skills that you have that you can use in other subjects. And that's maybe also what you were referring to when you said that um, you did a teacher training that was with a very strong methodology and a very clear um, way of teaching MFL and that you might not have used it in your practice, but you still benefited from that training. So I guess that's a, a very um, positive way of seeing um, the training. Um, now, you did say you didn't use it and I was wondering why did you realize when you started teaching in a classroom that that methodology wasn't maybe for you or maybe for your students can you tell us more about this yeah so um as i was saying the methodology is uh about using 100 percent target language so not using any english and using actions and pictures in order to transfer meaning um and it's uh it's sort of if you were reading research, you could call it a communicative um, language teaching methodology, but it's um, 
I, I guess the reason I didn't end up using it is because it has many benefits. It obviously really promotes excellent listening and speaking skills, but I felt that it didn't promote very good reading and writing skills. And the GCSE or, um, you know, all four skills are equally assessed. So, um, Although actually the reality of living in a country and and um, communicating with native speakers is actually having better listening and speaking skills over reading and writing skills actually wouldn't be a problem if you were living in the country. But the reality of um, children living in England and um, sitting the GCSE exam and that being really their end goal rather than, although they may go on later in life to live in the country, the end goal of their education, as it were, is the GCSE. So I felt like it wasn't promoting reading and writing skills enough. The other thing, and was um it was often leading to a lot of misconceptions because the actions and the um pictures weren't necessarily clear um it wasn't necessarily clear for the students exactly what the words meant so especially when it comes to translation you would pick up a lot of um you know missed meaning um and so i felt like it was just um i was then having to unpick a lot of things and it was leading to um, a much higher workload when it came to like marking and assessment because there ended up being a lot more to unpick. Um, so I think it was kind of partly to do with the reality of um, of the you know the English education system and GCSEs, and partly to do uh, with sort of workload and um, the impact that it was having on on marking because of how many misconceptions were were coming out. Yes, I completely agree. I had that same. Um realization we did um, a method that is used and promoted at a school called Sheem. I don't know if you've heard of it but we did that at my university which was Goldsmiths and uh, I was really for the target language approach because obviously being French <laughs> I do believe it's immersion that makes the language um, more alive and more uh, easy to learn I guess and also my English wasn't very good up until I went to university and it's only when I moved to England that my English improved. So I do believe that immersion should always be the end goal and uh, being in the country should always be the end goal of any language education. I, I did realize that if I focused my lessons on target language practice, then I would be too late to cover all the program that we have to cover for GCSEs. So in one way, the exam prevents you from working on that target only um, approach. So I guess that's the same kind of analysis that you came out with in your practice. Yeah, and I think it is a shame because I agree with you that in an ideal world, the outcome of language learning should be uh to be able to communicate with native speakers and to live in that country and that's obviously the hope that we have for all of those our students and that's obviously what happened to us you know you learn english in france and then came to live in england i learned french in english and then uh, in england and then went and lived in france and yes. and and like you say it wasn't until i lived in france that i became properly fluent in french um, so obviously that was the end goal for us and I would love that for all of the students that I teach and it does happen for some of them, but it doesn't happen for that many of them and I yes. think that um, 
I think it's a bit of both. I don't think we should, you know, lower our expectations and close off that opportunity for students. Of course, we should still create opportunities for them for that to be possible in the same way our teachers made it possible for us. But I also think that we have to understand that it, it isn't the reality for all students and therefore we still have to serve them well and even if they don't use it having a good GCSE qualification is going to serve them well in life um, and so we need to make sure that they're adequately prepared for for that exam because otherwise we are doing them a disservice even though it's it's maybe not our dream end goal for their language learning. Exactly. I mean we've been hired by a school to provide a good training so that they can succeed at their GCSE. So we can't ignore that for sure. Um, now, <laughs> I was wondering when you used a, um, a slightly different approach in your practice, was it an approach that you had as a student? Do you think your approach that you developed um, in your classroom was influenced more by what you learned and how you learned as a, as a student? Um, so what I ended up doing as a teacher um, is kind of combining some ideas from a couple of different practitioners. Um, so um, I kind of got some ideas um, from Barry Smith, who was the deputy head of Michaela School and it definitely influenced the methodology that Michaela used to teach um, French, which is very much based on parallel texts. And then also, um, you know, quite a famous file uh, teacher, Gianfranco Conti, who uses yes. sentence builders. And obviously his EPI methodology is very famous. And I wouldn't say that I used a sort of Barry Smith parallel text, Michaela type methodology exclusively. And I wouldn't say that I used an EPI um, methodology exclusively. I kind of took ideas from from both and kind of mm -hmm. package them together in my own way but i guess the the sort of the if i was to say like the one thing that would explain the way i taught languages was that i didn't um i didn't use actions i didn't use pictures um i used translation so i always provided um the english in full for students the meaning written down um, and I always, uh, so that was kind of one thing. And the other thing is that I always presented new language in sentences. So I didn't present language in single words. Um, and it's interesting, I think, um, thinking about, is that the way I um, learned languages or not? So I did French and Russian at school, went to a perfectly normal um school but for whatever lucky reason we got to do russian um and i was taught um french in kind of quite a traditional way a way i imagine a lot of people were taught languages i was taught nouns separately i was taught adjectives separately i was taught verb paradigms separately and i had to put all of those grammar pieces together and it was a very um grammar first approach mm -hmm. um and um are then but the way I was taught Russian was like much more the way I was taught MFL which was that I was taught Russian in complete sentences I wasn't provided with the English translation that was was provided through actions and pictures so I guess it was kind of also a bit of the sort of Cumbria Martins method mm -hmm. but it definitely wasn't single words it was full sentences and it was a lot of memorizing entire sentences and entire passages that were broken down afterwards. And when I was a child, I remember always 
thinking when I uh, when I had like a speaking exam coming up, I would always feel really confident about my Russian speaking exam because I knew that I could say lots of sentences in Russian that flowed and I didn't need to stop and think because I could just flow off quite a lot of Russian. Whereas um, when it came to um, like writing exams and translation exams, I always felt much more confident in French because I understood the grammar and I could, you know, I could think about what tense it was and what the verb ending was. And I also did Latin at school. And so and that's obviously the only way you can really teach Latin because it, you're only learning to read it. You're not learning to speak it. Um, and so um, it kind of also trying, you know, I could use some of my Latin knowledge. So I always used to think that I was better at, at, at school. I always used to think I was better at French. So I think if you'd asked me when I was a child, I would have said that's a better way to teach, mm -hmm. even though I ended up teaching a bit more like how my Russian teacher taught. But then when I went to sixth form, I was so much better at A-level um, Russian. I got a higher grade than A-level um, than I did get in A-level French. And I um, was so much more sort of successful. I, you know, like in, you know, in A-level a lessons become a lot more sort of a bit like seminars and you yes. sit in a circle and you speak and you have debates and things like that. And I had loads to say, kind of just say stuff in my Russian lessons, but I wasn't in my French lessons because I had to stop and think and break it down and think about my verb endings. So it's interesting because I think if you'd asked me when I was at GCSE, I would have said, oh, if, if I become a language teacher, I didn't know I was going to be a language teacher at that age, but oh, if I become a language teacher, I'm going to teach like my French teacher. But then when I did A-level, I realised, oh, actually, when it comes to production and making rapid progress, the way my Russian teacher taught, which is quite similar to the way I ended up teaching, mm -hmm. um, it, it leads to much more rapid production and much more confidence with speaking. Um, so I think it's, yeah, like it's it depends, I guess, what you're trying to achieve and um, on the child's perception and on their strengths. Some children, you know, quite like grammar and quite good at grammar, whereas others like speaking. Um, but yeah, so I, actually I was taught two different languages, two different ways, and I've ended up teaching the way I was taught Russian. That's fascinating. And I wonder if um, your teachers chose them, their method just because they were more confident in using one rather than the other. Um, because now I can see that we normalize or we professionalize the way we teach a lot so you end up having departments where everybody does the same thing and then you your your russian teachers or your spanish teachers or your french teachers are all going to apply the same method and that could be a loss eventually because as you see in your own experience you had two different styles and you benefited in different ways and it allowed you to reflect on how to 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 learn as well so having the same method in one department could actually be detrimental i'm thinking yeah i hadn't even thought about that because as a head of department i have always insisted on the same methodology <laughs> for all all languages and um in my most recent department um we were teaching only french and spanish and those languages have enough commonalities yes. that it never really felt detrimental that we were using the same methodology but the where I was head of department in a school prior to that the school also taught German as well as French and Spanish and I did often have the German teachers coming back at me and and disagreeing with um not not disagreeing that the method was effective but 
but questioning sometimes this doesn't quite work for German and actually you're creating more for us because, you know, we the way we used to teach German maybe is is better. And actually, I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about that. I'd only re I hadn't thought about it in terms of specific languages. I'd always thought about it in terms of end goal, because I yes. think the the. Um, you know, teach. I've always taught in inner city state schools where you often don't get a huge amount of hours um, uh, given over to MFL teaching, and also often where the students have so much going on in their lives that the time they are in school really is the optimal time for learning, and that not a huge amount of learning happens outside the classroom because you know doing things like homework and stuff often isn't very practical for them mm -hmm. so that's why I've chosen a methodology that kind of leads to quite rapid production um because then it, it means that they can make progress in the short amount of time I have with them and when I did Russian at school we did only have two hours a week and we didn't start it until year eight whereas with French we had four hours a week which seems bonkers now I don't even know where how they fitted in any other subjects because I also did two hours a week of Latin was I only in language lessons it feels like it maybe I like it <laughs> yeah I know where did they fit all of this in I have no idea to have to go back and look at my timetable but um we had significantly more French you know we double the amount of French lessons as we had Russian lessons and we also started in year seven we did an extra year of it so I guess I've always assumed that the reason my French teacher and my Russian teacher chose two different methodologies was because my Russian teacher had a lot less time to get us to the same goal. We still sat at GCSE at the same time. And so I guess I've always assumed that he made that decision for the same reason I've made that decision in terms of, um, you know, it, in Production. needing to make progress really quickly and needing to produce really quickly. Um, I guess I'd never really thought about it, about the fact that obviously French and Russian are two very different Extremely languages. Different, different alphabet, yeah. And different different grammatical structures, I yeah. mean, very different. And and Russian and German have much more in common than, mm -hmm. than in terms of the way the language works, the grammar and the cases and things like that. So actually, you're right, maybe it's okay to teach, teach French and Spanish with the same methodology, but maybe we shouldn't be teaching German and Russian with the same methodology as French and Spanish. That's an interesting question. Perhaps, and you see, that's the point of having these discussions with other MFL colleagues, is that we realise that... <laughs> <laughs> there's things we think we take for granted yeah and then suddenly we realize it might be a, a different situation so um i'm really um interested by how this discussion is um evo evolving um so you did say that you um didn't know you were going to be a language teachers teacher when you were doing uh, latin and french and russian although you were definitely spending a lot of hours on linguistics <laughs> yeah i was definitely spending a lot of time in language lessons that's true you did so um is there any influential teacher you still remember uh, from that time yeah definitely so i didn't know i was going to be a language teacher but i did always know i was going to be a teacher so um my it just changed which subject all of the time um basically depending on my favorite subject at the time mm -hmm. um but uh i uh i don't remember this because i was only four years old but apparently i came home from um, my first day of reception and uh said to my mom when i grow up i want to be like miss jones who was my reception teacher and i don't remember miss jones in the sense of i couldn't tell you what she looked like or what she mm -hmm. taught me but i definitely do remember the kind of like feeling like of just 
every time I ended up later on in life doing some work experience in my former primary school and I just remember walking in and she wasn't there anymore so I've never seen her since but like just that kind of walking past my reception classroom and 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 sort of remembering oh those were good vibes like so I think she was definitely the first person that like made me like school and I think a lot of teachers actually liked school because they're I mean they're willing to I feel like teachers either absolutely loved school which is why they want to go back to school or they absolutely hated school which is why they want to help students but I feel like people in the middle who kind of felt neutral about school like who was like oh school was school you know I learned stuff it was all right serving well in life but I'm not super enthusiastic nor did I hate it don't tend to become teachers. You you kind of tend to be passionate one way or the other. It seems and, like a Marmite situation. Yeah, definitely. So I'd say Miss Jones, definitely my reception teacher, made me passionate about learning and school and made me want to just be a teacher in general. And then my most influential teacher, um, I would say, is um, is someone called Richard Wheeler, who um, is, uh, he well, he's about to retire this year as assistant head um, from a school called St Mary Redcliffe in Bristol um, and he's also I say retire he's actually got a new job at the University of Bristol working with school partnerships between the university and Bristol uh-huh. so he's still staying in education and he he was just the best teacher I've ever had he was just so he was my philosophy teacher I did A-level philosophy yeah. um, and he was just so so good at explaining things obviously philosophy is a really hard concept to explain to 16 to 18 year olds um and uh he was just so good at explaining it and so thoughtful so um it's a faith school so a lot of people in the classroom were were christian but philosophy is a, is is ethics it's not religious religion specific so um obviously it's a subject you have to teach with a huge amount of sensitivity to people's different religious views and he was so good at that and also despite being an assistant head so a busy man he was always available like if you ever saw him in the corridor and said oh sir can I just ask you about my homework he never said uh send me an email which is what I know I've definitely said to kids when they've stopped me in the corridor we all have I don't remember (laughs) I do remember Richard ever saying, send me an email. Um, and we've stayed in contact. So I ended up babysitting his kids and ended up being in an orchestra with one of his daughters. And um, he still lives around the corner from me because I still live where I grew up. Um, so um, I still see him on the street and he's met my baby. And um, yeah, I think he, I, f- I feel like whenever I had a hard day at school uh, as a teacher, I've always just thought, Richard's done this for his whole career and seems to love it like it must be possible to do this forever and love it so I always sort of remember just how passionate he is despite the fact that he's he's nearing retirement age so he's definitely more than influential because he's become a friend as well. yeah absolutely yeah which is why I'm calling him Richard not Mr Wheeler <laughs> yes <laughs> I don't call him Mr Wheeler anymore I did no, though as a kid obviously of course you would um so important to feel safe and welcome uh, at school and this is what Miss, mrs jones did to you and then um someone who brings lots of um warmth in, in their teaching practice and um can open up the subject to you and other students so it seems like these are the things that you really cared about in your teachers i'm going to pause the recording because we are going to listen to the news.
It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Telegraph reported this week on calls from some academics for schools to ban smartphones. The article refers to devices as extremely dangerous over fears that they damage cognitive ability. The research by academics in Australia suggests that phones can be hazardous to children as they have a negative effect on learning, social skills and mental health. Dr Mark Williams, an honorary professor of cognitive neuroscience at Macquarie University in Sydney, is quoted as saying that having a phone in a pocket or bag decreases working memory capacity and that this means children don't learn as well. He goes on to say that there are zero benefits to smartphones in schools. Dr Williams went on to add that other research studies have shown that smartphones also link to causes of depression, anxiety and body dysmorphia. In Spain, phones have been banned from schools in some regions since 2015. University of Valencia academics found that pupils' test scores in some core subjects improved. In the USA, researchers at an Ohio hospital found that screen time led to lower brain functioning and a study in Malaysia published in 2020 found that the presence of a smartphone decreased the ability of undergraduates to accurately recall information. The current Department for Education and Advice in England is that teachers are best placed to make decisions about phones and their use in school. The value of learning a foreign language is often discussed in schools but in Germany, there have been calls for primary schools to scrap English lessons. The president of the German Teachers Association has said that schools should focus on German reading and maths instead. His remarks come as German students scored lower than their peers in other countries in the International Primary School Reading Survey. Heinz Peter Meidinger told German broadcasters that focusing on English was a wrong priority and that more attention should be paid to reading skills, writing skills and arithmetic. The BBC reports that MPs have launched an inquiry into Ofsted school inspections, looking at how useful they are to parents, governors and schools in England. Education Select Committee Chairman Robin Walker said Ofsted had an important role, but that there had been a groundswell of criticism in recent months. 
Ofsted itself has said it welcomed the inquiry, but that it had already made changes. MPs will consider how inspections affect the workload and well-being of school staff and pupils, and what contribution its reports make to helping schools improve. The issues likely to be discussed are the current system of awarding one overall grade to a school, and whether it is right to deem a school inadequate if inspectors raise concerns about child welfare. Parents, school governors, teachers and unions will be able to submit evidence alongside the government and Ofsted itself. Ofsted have already made changes, particularly to the complaints process, but the NAHT's Paul Whiteman said the changes didn't go far enough. Finally, in the West Midlands, the BBC reports that a 91-year-old former teacher is helping children develop their literacy skills from a living room. Diane Idols has five pupils she reads with over an online platform aimed at helping children progress with reading. She said the volunteering work had filled a huge hole in her life after the death of her husband. Mrs Idols volunteers through the Bookmark Reading Charity, which matches trained volunteers with primary children struggling with reading. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to answer the question we all want to know. What is the best presentation software? I do promise to give you an answer this week after leaving you on a cliffhanger, but First, a quick recap for those who missed last week or fast-forwarded me. Considering most lessons delivered in a classroom contain some sort of presentation, it's possible that our students are facing up to a thousand presentations a year. This isn't a bad thing as we are presenting information and that's what the software is designed to do. However, like a display, spend ages on, how long does it take before it stops being noticed? Do we really know what experience a pupil gets through a typical week in school? Are they being engaged or do they know how to look like they are listening? Don't worry, there is no way I'm going to mention slants here if you're thinking that is where I was going next. The there is no best presentation software. As I've already mentioned, there are lots of free and paid for presentation apps out there. The key to success is which one do you choose? This is where a lot of people go wrong. They ask someone else's opinion. What works for one may not work for another. The choice you make depend on two key words, purpose and audience. When you choose the method of presentation for a lesson, you need to be thinking about the best way to grab focus. In the end, our job is to encourage long-term remembering. So if the lesson is about remembering short text-based facts and you have powerful images that back up what you're saying, a looping PowerPoint presentation or equivalent may do the job. Do you want to embed a lot of web links and videos? Why not take a look at Wakelet, a free way to collect web links together and share them. You can present with it and then hand the link off for self most app developers today aim to make their apps intuitive, so changing things around shouldn't be too hard for you to get to grips with. And you may just find engagement rises, and in the end, that's what it's all about. What do you do to engage pupils? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So yes, Katie, you were saying that you had some very inspirational teachers, and I think I did too, and that's why we end up in the f job we have. Um, but you've been in education for 12 years, so now I would say you are pretty much an expert on the MFL. I have a question, because 
at the moment we see that there's less and less um, people who are interested in taking French for their A-levels. Uh, it's a struggle to fill classes in many schools uh, for A-levels French. Spanish is still popular but not as much as we would like it to be. German has basically disappeared from my local area. There's almost no state secondary school in North London that offers German as a as a foreign language. So what do you see and what have you seen over the last 12 years as far as uh, MFL is concerned in the UK? Um, well, I think that, I mean, yeah, all of what you say is definitely true in terms of a, a national um, picture of, of languages. And I think for me, so the, the biggest changes that I have seen um, as an MFL teacher in the past 12 years are all like all definitely political. And I think that that's the challenge of being a teacher is that politics plays massively into what we do. So um, when I say political, I mean, for example, um, a change in um, languages being compulsory at GCSE okay. to them becoming optional at GCSE. When that happened, that also did come with them then becoming compulsory at Key Stage 2, but there's been a lot of challenges for various reasons um, with the implementation of languages at Key Stage 2. So that hasn't been as successful as, as it, it should have been. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that has, you know, obviously influenced once you make it optional, <laughs> then clearly less students do it. And if less students are doing it at GCSE, then obviously less are doing it at A-level and less are doing it at degree level. Um, so I think that's one political thing that has influenced um, language teaching. I think um, the uh, you know other not wanting to open a can of worms, but the other political thing is Brexit. Um, yes. I think it depends on the area, perhaps less so in somewhere somewhere like London, which obviously is still very multicultural and very multi ethnic and predominantly remain um, in terms of um, people have people voted. Certainly in many areas of the country um, that, as we know, as we see in the media, Brexit has for some people sort of almost validated racism. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but as in... Um, it's your way of, and it's a valid way, so just... Um, yeah, I think some people now, racism always happened, obviously. Um, but I think in some uh, some areas um, that were, um, you know, predominantly leave areas um, has kind of led to people being much more outspoken about racism, you know, out, outwardly racist, whereas they may have been privately racist before. Um, and I think that, you know, that in those areas that does influence children's attitudes to, towards um, languages or towards sort of um, otherness. I think yes, um, perhaps children not being racist, but maybe being um, sort of slightly xenophobic or their yes, parents being I would, xenophobic. I would say it's xenophobic more than because yeah, there's not many differences between a French person. Yeah, and yeah, true, true. It is more, I guess. Um, yeah, so I think that that's you know uh, that's quite like geography specific. I think mm -hmm. that doesn't influence all areas. But that has played a, a role. And I think the reason that it's played a role is less. That's obviously still a minority of people behaving like that. But with social media, which is another thing that has changed in the time I've been a teacher, the kind of massive experience 
explosion of how accessible social media is and how visible social media is. Um, and therefore, that even if it is still, even if it is a minority of people holding those negative views because of the internet, a large number of people and a large number of young children can see can see those those. Yes. Um, so I think that that um, that's played a role as well, sort of the internet. Um, and I think the other the other thing is is obviously the pandemic, which has um, influenced children. Um, and adults in a in a whole number of ways in terms of mental health and attitudes towards schools. So that's not specific attitudes towards language learning. It's just an attitude towards school and education in general. Um, but obviously that influence that impacts all teachers and um, all all you know, including language teachers. I would also add the fact that we couldn't travel for two to three years. So even the ones who can afford to travel to France or Spain on holidays. We didn't have that opportunity because of the COVID lockdown. So a lot of interest that could have been nurtured by traveling yeah. was stifled. And um, it's definitely had an impact on all social classes. It's not just the ones yeah. who, who go to France every summer or Spain. It's, it's everybody's been affected and it's had a negative impact um, in languages particularly not only languages i mean we know the same in english and science and sports, yeah well but... trips just generally trips, i think exactly. yeah like obviously trips abroad for has been difficult for financial reasons so clearly as you as you rightly said they've never been an opportunity for everyone mm -hmm. but i think even if you weren't going on them just hearing them and knowing that they exist mm -hmm. showed to you that there are other countries and yes. um, even if you never went on those trips yourself and so i think that um you're right is that, that just it, it it doesn't matter if you were never going to be the one that was traveling the fact that nobody is traveling is going to influence your your views of, of other countries existing and and therefore taking an interest in them so yeah so i think you know all of those things in 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 a multitude of different ways have impacted schools and have influenced um impacted language teaching which unfortunately is all quite negative and in, in and and contributes to a decline which you were explaining before in you know i don't think there's one thing that we can pinpoint on um you know on the decline the national decline of gcse and a level uptake i think it's a multitude of, of factors um but i would say thankfully in my own career so that's kind of the national picture and i, I have definitely seen the national picture over the mm -hmm. uh, over the 12 years but in terms of my own individual context and i've worked in um a number of of schools i've worked in about five different they change schools every three years and I've been head of department in a number of different schools. What I've actually seen in, in the schools I've worked in is with the right curriculum, and I think curriculum design is so important. And I think one of the um, sort of positives of, um, I, I mean, this isn't me saying that accountability and Ofsted are positive, clearly there's lots of negative things about them. Um, but one of the positives, or perhaps the only positive, is the real focus on high quality teaching, high yes. quality curriculum, 
um, and curriculum being very much at the front of what is considered makes a good school as if they've got a good curriculum and and what is considered making a good teacher is to do with with pedagogy and delivery and professional development has massively upskilled in 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 that area so I think one of the real positives that I've seen um, in in my career as a teacher is that there's been a huge shift from I feel like before it was very much individuals were left to to teach their subject and to have their own opinions on how that subject is taught. And I'm sure many of them were, were brilliant at it, obviously. Um, but there was never a kind of o overall view of, you know, what does it mean at this school? What does good teaching look like at this school? What is a good curriculum at this school? And um, so I think that now there's such a huge focus in schools on really good teaching, on really good curriculum. And so as um, as a head of department, that has like having leaders that are really driving high quality curriculum and high quality teaching, I think that that's been such a positive change and it's made me feel really supported as a head of department. And it's really made me feel like I can influence a lot of change for good as um, a head of department. So in all of the schools that I've worked at, I've always felt really supported by the senior leaders to make the changes that have been necessary when they have been necessary. They haven't always been necessary, obviously, but when they have been necessary to ensure that the teaching of languages is really good and that the curriculum um, for language learning is really good. And I think with the right teaching and the right curriculum, you totally can um, increase GCSE and A-level uptake. And in all the schools I've worked in, um, like year on year, GCSE and A-level uptake has has gone up once we've really made teaching and curriculum a focus. Oh, yeah. If if there's a, at the local level in the school, a want for change or a, a politics that's supportive of languages, it can definitely make a huge difference. So now, sure. that, now that you're training um, the new generation of uh, language teachers, yeah. what would you like them to have access to as teachers so that they can uh, fulfill this so that they can nurture a new generation who are going to enjoy learning languages so what's your vision what do you think we need so you mentioned the curriculum um, but what else do you think is very much needed for the next teachers i think what i want for my uh, trainee teachers is for them to be able to have the headspace and the time and the energy to be able to get as passionate and as excited about language learning as I was able to get in my career and therefore to have the time and energy to design a really exciting curriculum and to bring in especially you know if they've traveled or they're native speakers all the exciting cultural stuff and all the stuff that makes kids really excited about language learning I want them to be able to actually have the time to stop and to think and to to plan that and to have time to plan that and therefore to have the energy to to deliver languages and to sell their passion and I think that only comes with really good behavior in the classroom and I think that um if you are battling with behavior you it's obviously draining and exhausting so you so you don't have the energy to make the curriculum amazing um and so i think what i want is for i've worked in the last three schools i've worked in behavior has been really good mm -hmm. and one of them um 
you know, one of them that was a reasonably, um, I guess, the, the uh, many of the students came from homes where their parents promoted education and um, really sort of encouraged them to behave. So one of them, a lot of the positive pupil behavior did come from, from parental support in addition to the school support. But the other two was really, I mean, I'm not saying the parents were, weren't supportive, obviously that always plays a role, but the other two really was down to the senior leadership and the behavior systems that were in place. I think a school in an ideal world has parental support with behavior, but I think it can be achieved without parental support as well. Um, and so I, I just wish, I know it's possible because I've worked in those schools and I've visited those schools and I know know that children can behave with the right with the right boundaries and the right support in place support as well obviously um in terms of pastoral support and SEND support um but I I it just it really upsets me when I hear about people who um are, you know are not enjoying teaching because of behavior not because they don't love their subject um, and not because they haven't got great ideas about how to teach their subject and not because they're not capable of teaching their subject really well. Um, and so I just wish that, you know, I, I right now I can think of at least 20 schools that I've visited where behaviour is brilliant. And that's not because of, um, you know, by accident, that's because the SLT of work made that happen. And so I just wish that nationally that that was happening because it's not fair on teachers and it's not fair on children it's it's a lottery it's really a, is a postcode lottery and it's not just as you said because um parents are always supportive and it's an easier community to deal with it's down to following a strict behavior policy at all levels in the staff and also making sure that everybody agrees and when people do that it works doesn't it yeah you've seen it <laughs> i have i really have and i'm not in one place i've seen it in multiple places i'm also a governor for a trust where it happens in all 50 of the schools in their trust like it's it it's not happening on a on a micro level in some areas it's happening on a macro level in some areas they're are hardly any schools where there is poor behavior. I mean, there's always going to be obviously some poor behavior because like there's so many facts, you know, children are yeah, still human beings. Human beings, exactly. But the issue is, um, can teachers teach their subject and can they do it so that they're still passionate even after five years or seven years? And it, if you talk to teachers, I mean, you're on, on social media, you're on Twitter, that's how we met. And yeah. you can see all these teachers who are losing faith in what they do. And I think there's nothing worse than that to, to hire someone who wants to do a good job because most teachers do. Yeah. Most teachers actually like to share their love for their subject with other people, children and staff. So most teachers that I've met are good teachers. Obviously, you have affinities. Sometimes you have personalities that shine more than others. But most teachers are usually full of goodwill and know their stuff. And yet they can't seem to be able to do their job because the structure's on in place. So I, I completely agree with you. And I, and I hope we, we can find a national solution. I would say even an international one because it's the same issues in America. Oh, uh, yeah. Certain I mean, if not worse, extreme. sometimes. Exactly, it's always yeah. worse in America, isn't it? 
But I mean, that's such a stereotype to say it's worse in America. But as in like, I think one of the benefits we at least have in this system in 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 England is, is that we have like there are certain things that are standardized naturally uh, nationally and therefore there's certain ways of reporting things and certain ways of sort of learning from things to make sure they don't happen again but but america is like their education system is so complicated because it's not national it's, fragmented. it's run by, yeah it's federal but then also even within federal um, because of charter schools, which I know are like academies, and in some ways our academies are allowed to do different things, but actually in many ways they don't. For the most part, they, you know, all kind of adhere to the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like you wouldn't drastically know you were in an academy versus a local authority school in terms of many things. There might be a few things like, I don't know, they might have a extra week at October half term because they fiddled with their inset days or something like that. But but yeah, but whereas I know charter schools can run things very differently. And so if you're on a state with a lot of charter schools, then then it's really basically it's a very complicated education system. And so I I often see when when they tell, you know, when you read on social media, American teachers telling awful stories about things that have happened in the same way. Obviously, you read English teachers doing you at least know, like I could say to that British teacher, you need to tell the union about this or you need yes. to tell offset about this or you need to that's a safeguarding thing you need to tell this person you know like I feel like the systems aren't perfect obviously no, but, but they're centralized yeah they're centralized so at least I feel like I kind of know how to help them but and 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 this, that makes the situation seem slightly less desperate but with some American teachers you read the comments of of you know I wouldn't comment because I feel like I don't have anything to add because I don't teach in America but when I read other people's comments who are American teachers you know it's just so disparate because it just depends on the situation yes. and that must just make if you're in a challenging situation make you feel so desperate because how how do you get help whereas at least in this country you would you know kind of know how to get help you do and and this is why I was joking that it, it's more extreme and we do not have to deal with, obviously, all this thing about gun violence um, in, in, in the UK. Um, but internationally, we have the same issues with behavior in France. Um, I hear a lot of teachers complaining in France. We've had um, also head teachers committing suicide in France. Um, we've had this. It happened in the UK as well. So there, there is a general malaise and it's something we can't deny and we have to work on together as teachers. But I feel like we also need support from all parts of society. Parents as well. And I know you're a parent too. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, it's tricky when it's about your child because obviously you, you, you go into a protective mode. But we, we know that Parents also have to be on the side of the teachers because at the end of the day, teachers want their children to do well. Um, most teachers do. So what would you, um, if you had a magic wand, let's say, and if you could be um, education secretary for a few weeks, what would you try to do to sort out the whole issue about behavior and lack of time for teachers to do their job properly? Um, I think I, well, money, obviously, that's what anyone's going to do with a magic wand. And I think money um, for um, pastoral and um, SEND and safeguarding and all of the sort of the wider welfare that takes up a huge amount of teachers' time. I think one of the things that 
I was so lucky at my previous school and what and you know a real ethos of my previous school was about teachers are here to teach we have these strict behavior rules so that children behave and so that you can teach but of course we had children who couldn't follow those rules for various reasons and therefore needed various additional support and of course we had children you know who 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 you know had experienced trauma and things like that and needed various uh, therapeutical support but we had a massive SND department and a massive pastoral department and so obviously it was still part of my job I still liaised with them but actually a huge amount of that workload was done by them meaning I had so much more time and capacity for just teaching um, but the reason that we could afford such a massive um, SEN department and such a massive pastoral you know non-teaching pastoral staff is um, because we were startup schools and startup schools in the first three years get additional funding to help them get off the ground. That money is not going to last forever and they will end up, I would assume, unless they can find the money from somewhere else, having to reduce that team and then that pressure will probably come on, on to those teachers. So I think for me is the size of that SEN department and the size of that pastoral department that we were able to fund, that should be funded for every school forever. Um, so I think that would that would be one thing is having a huge number of non-teaching staff um, to support children with with all of the um, additional support that they need, um, because then you can have a strict behaviour policy, but still be inclusive because then you've still got the whole safety net and all of the support and and all, all of the um, you, know, you, can, you can put in all of these things in place but it doesn't add to the teacher workload so that would be one thing and then I think the other thing would be um increasing PPA time which would mean more teachers and we don't have enough teachers so that would be really quite a big magic wand um but um hopefully it would then make teaching more enjoyable nationally because I think at the moment as you say it's a bit of a lottery teaching is enjoyable for some but not for all yes. um and so um and and therefore those those some people who it's not enjoyable for are the ones who are leaving um but hopefully if it was enjoyable for all then that would um, mean we'd have enough teachers in order to be able to teach um and have more PPA and I think that that was Something again, I was really lucky with my last school because we um, weren't full because we didn't have all year groups because it was a startup school. And again, that's that's going to change once it's full. Um, all teachers will be up to full timetable. Um, and uh, so I think having worked in a school which was lucky enough to have the money to have um, extra SEN support and extra pastoral support and which was um, under under pan or had less students yes. and therefore was lucky enough for teachers to be under teaching load but knowing that that wasn't that isn't the reality forever so I don't know what's going to happen in the future and and I hope that the school will continue to be just as a wonderful place to work and and for the children to learn in as it was when I was there and and you know it's de definitely got the right senior leadership who absolutely want to make that happen and who will do their best to make that happen um, but I think that that's what I wish for everyone nationally and for I wish it for that school forever rather than it, you know, potentially in a few years time, them not having the money to make that possible anymore. And I also just wish it for the whole country so that everyone could run a school like that. Exactly. So you're saying that we need a proper social care plan and yeah. that's not just for schools. 
it's also for oh yeah all the other services are unfunded too mental health services as we know are uh, under um, performing um so it would be a massive um i would call it like a a green plan you know the, the amount of money that after the second war world war we we spent on social issues rebuilding it's almost like we've been starving our economy and now we just need a proper funding to support all these people who need the support and the earlier the better we all know that Uh, children need to have the proper nutrition to be able to use their brain effectively they need to be in a safe space you you broached all that so it would be a massive social care plan nationally and then also making sure teachers aren't burning out because of too much work and too little time having enough time to do what we're doing today and discuss their their work and find new ideas and new resources and and keep the spark of um you know teaching because we do like it it's great when when a lesson goes well and and i'm sure you remember it was only three weeks ago wasn't it it's just you feel such a buzz you know when when the children are on your side and and you've covered something new and they're they're thinking oh i learned something today and this is this is the best feeling once it works for sure and i think the the other things i would say which were certainly sort of my motivators for moving away from the classroom are, are pay which obviously we're currently striking about um and also flexible working which is getting better because there's you know some brilliant organizations who are working really hard to try try and make that happen but it isn't it it it's so hard because I get obviously I I don't want teachers teaching online and working from home I want teachers in buildings teaching children and I want children physically coming to school every day so just the sheer nature of how schools are set up does make flexible working really difficult so I do completely sympathize with that but I also just think that we um are lagging behind any any other profession in the sense of um how flexibly we can work and so i think we need to to think more creatively about that like i was really um lucky in my previous school that because i didn't have a tutor group i didn't have to be at school until nine o'clock if i didn't want to be because i didn't have that was when period one started and so i didn't need to be there at 8 30 when registration started um which meant that i was able to take my son to school uh, to nursery because most nurseries don't open until eight o'clock but for many teachers they can't take their child to nursery because they they can't drop them off at eight o'clock or they'd be late for work and so obviously we need teachers to be form tutors. This isn't me saying get, re- get rid of form time and start school at nine o'clock. But it would be nice if it was somehow possible that all parents, if they wanted to, do drop off at eight o'clock, were able to. And it would be nice if, you know, a lot of preschools finish at four o'clock. So, but if you've got a meeting after school, that's not necessarily possible. And so it'd be nice if meetings were, you know, actually scheduled in the middle of the day. And I think that some of these things are possible for head teachers to make happen without needing help from the government. But I think some of those things do need help from the government because I think, you know, things like being able to do meetings in the middle of the day only going to come if teachers have got more ppa and that's only going to come if we've got more money and more teachers so i so i think you know there were were lots of schools doing loads of great things for for flexible working and i think some of it 
when it isn't happening is just to do with head teachers not thinking creatively enough when they could be and they could be using other ideas from other schools but I think some of it generally isn't their fault and it is to do with you know that not they're not being enough money for them to be able to literally give that time to teachers and I think the same the same with pay I think when I was a group so the the last teacher strikes were my first year of teaching my very first year of teaching okay and um like 11 years ago and at the time I um didn't understand why there were strikes because at the time I so I I trained in London so admittedly I was earning 30,000 I wasn't earning 23 which is what, what ECTs earn outside of London which is obviously absolutely no money at all um but as someone who was earning 30,000 as an ECT or an NQT at the time in London that was very similar to to what my now husband then boyfriend was earning in his graduate job and so I didn't feel like I was earning less than other people with a degree but then you know 12 years later and I'm a no longer in London so I've taken a pay cut anyway but also um you know uh, you get to the top you're on UPS three and okay. that's it and UPS three is like 42 grand or something so it's like literally 12 grand more so I've I've had one grand pay rise a year whereas uh, you know my husband is now earning a lot more than that yes and um, in the same amount of time in a different profession and it isn't just about wanting more money for the sake of it it's about actually being valued as a as a professional and also it's mostly women who are teachers, 70% of yeah. staff is women. So there is the gender pay gap there involved as well. And also the fact that a lot of women go into teaching or social care, and then we're paid much less than men who go into different professions. Yeah, it definitely makes you question if there were more men where the pay rises would have happened oh, soon. Yeah, well, usually that's the rule, isn't it? When it's yeah. feminized, then the pay goes down. Oh, dear. Yeah, like but banking and law, very masculine exactly. sectors and very well paid. Exactly. But that would be another podcast. Um, yeah, time, exactly. Time, <laughs> time has run out, Katie. Um, I think you are definitely showing us that there's still optimism to nurture. Um, we could do very much, we could do a big change just by implementing a few tweaks, um, allowing teachers to have a bit of a breather and um, also making social care, a, a, you know, the first step to, towards change uh, before we even consider schools. I think we definitely need to, to have a social care plan in general in the UK. Um, thank you so much, Katie. That was lovely. Um, I hope this discussion is giving you ideas that you want to try out and maybe some discussions with your colleagues about is it the method we choose? It does it, is it the language that makes us choose a method or is it a personality thing that there's lots to, to discuss into that? So um, I'm going to stop um, our interview and I thank you again for participating. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.